Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is April 4th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is This Is My Life Centralization of Rural Emergency Healthcare. And people may be wondering, where is that song from? Well, that is Kim Larson, arguably the most famous Dutch pop star and, I think, looks a little bit like Neil Young. Our guest skeptics, yes, there are two, are the authors of a recent editorial on the centralization of healthcare. So our first guest skeptic is Dr. Luella Vaughn. She is an internist practicing as a hospitalist physician at an academic center in London, and that is in the UK, the real London, with a special interest in smaller, rural, and remote healthcare. Her main job, though, is working for a think tank. Ooh, I want to find out more about that. Welcome to the <laughs> SGEM, Luella. Thanks, Ken. Pleasure to be here. Doesn't it sound cool? You work for a think tank. What 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 is this think tank that you're working about? You're not sitting around thinking about tanks, are you? No, but I do sit around and think. Uh, so it's, it's like a university. So we were founded with a charitable donation. Uh, and so this means that while we operate like a university, we don't have to chase funds all of the time. And we can be independent. Uh, and we work in the health policy, health, policy, health researcher space uh, in the UK. Ooh, isn't that liberating? You don't have to chase the dollars or the pounds where you're from. It is awesome. I love it. And, and 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 it's independent, right? So it's it's not tied to anything. So it helps get around some of these financial conflicts of interest. Absolutely. So we are meant to be politically neutral because part of our job is to actually critique health policy, whether it comes from the right or the left, uh, and that makes it a really good space to work in. And then our second guest skeptic is John Brown. He is a PhD and a professor of health services research in Ireland but you're not currently in Ireland right now. And you've been studying rural health care issues since 2012. So over 10 years. Welcome to the SGM, John. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, really looking forward to this conversation. Well, I heard that your PhD was in the psychology department, but not a lot of psychology. So what's your main area of research? What are you looking at? Well, I have two main interests. So I'm interested in measurement generally. And then I have a specific focus at the moment in um, the organization of hospital care in Ireland and then more broadly and focusing on the optimal configuration of emergency care. Well, this is an SGEM Extra episode and there have been many, and I know this is an audio program, but I'm putting up air quotes, temporary emergency department closures in the last year where I work. In Ontario alone, there have been approximately 160 emergency departments temporarily closed since the beginning of 2022. Now, this is something that has only happened one time, one time since 2006. And so it came up in my feed, an article. It was an editorial, and it was an editorial by you two. And I wanted to get you on the SGEM to discuss this idea of centralization in healthcare. So I'm going to ask either one of you, hey, why did you get interested in this topic? Well, I could I could start by just saying that um, I come from a rural background. I My mum and dad are from Kerry, 
which is one of the most rural counties in Ireland, which is a country which has a more rural settlement pattern than many European countries. Thank you for um, clarifying that Ireland is a country. Is that right? Ireland is its own country? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but how, you know, we, we have this uh, struggle on defining what is rural. So give me a population. How big? Uh, well, the, the Republic of Ireland has 5 million people in it. And, you know, the county that I'm from uh, has about, I think, close to 100,000 people in it. And it has one acute hospital for that population. But, but, the, but you know, the, it's a very mountainous area. But the small community that you grew up in, that's what I was getting at with what is rural, because we, we often define rural. So I grew up on a little apple farm. You know, my neighbors, we'd have to like travel to get to the neighbors. Um, mm. The smallest town closest to me was a place called Poplar, not popular, because we certainly weren't popular, Poplar Hill. And it had no numbers on it because it would change if somebody, you know, was born or died because it was such as you know, hundreds of people. So I lived in a community just outside on a farm, but the closest community only had a few hundred people in it. How big was your rural area? Uh, well, the village is probably four or 500 people at the most, if you include all of the the catchment area. The suburbs, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it is one of those areas where in the old days, I think we, we have air codes now, but in the old days, the address would just be, you know, John Brown, Ballyduff, Kerry, and that would get to you. Yeah, ours had RR and it stood for rural route. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, pretty rural. So, um, uh, the two of you, when do you think this trend that you've been observing on centralization of healthcare and acute healthcare started? Well, so I think that that it started long before this. So the piece of research that that really got me interested in this was that I did a piece of work on a long project on medical generalism in smaller hospitals in England. Uh, and when you start to look at which in, in which the centralisation agenda plays really heavily in, in what smaller hospitals in England look like. So in the last 30 years, half of all smaller hospitals in the UK have closed. And so the UK system that we see at the moment is entirely a product of the trend towards specialisation. Uh, and it really started back in the 1980s. Uh, so this has been going on for for a long time, and of course it's been accelerated by technological change, particularly uh, in cardiology and other acute vascular diseases where time really is of the essence, uh, and that's driven the whole entire healthcare agenda. Even although the research right back in the 1980s suggested that actually generalism is what the general population needs. So it really started during the best musical and movie era of all time, the 1980s. That's very interesting. All right. Let's get to the study uh, that you refer to in your editorial. And it looks at the experience in Denmark with a reconfiguration of their emergency healthcare services. Can you give a brief description of what the objectives of that study? Yeah, I mean, I can, I'm speaking now as one of the editors of BMJ Quality and Safety. So I was the person who... Uh, commissioned the editorial and handled that manuscript as it went through the journal. Basically, it's looking at the the outcomes after implementation of a centralization program in Denmark and measuring success or failure in terms of 30-day mortality or in-hospital mortality. And they're looking at a large-scale national program in Denmark where Many emergency departments were closed. 
and uh, many smaller acute hospitals repurposed. And the basic conclusion was that things were going very well before this program started and going less well after it had concluded. Now, there are many issues with interpreting causality in a design like that. But I think the one thing anyone who reads a paper like that can be clear on is that this does not provide evidence in support of centralization. Yeah, so I, I think just to pick up on two points for, from John is that, that this is the, the, the program hasn't been completed, but this is like an interim assessment of the direction of, of travel. Um, and I think it's also important to say that this is part of a series of papers from the same group, which is the Brabrand group, which again show that the outcomes that they've been looking for, which were to reduce admissions to shorten and to shorten length of stay, also haven't been realised. So the number of admissions has continued to go up over this period and there's been no impact on the length of stay. So there's been a series of papers of which this is the, probably the most important, which show that the aims of the the program so far have not been realised despite billions of euros of investment. And so this Danish uh, reconfiguration, so people know, started in about 2008. And then this publication was, of course, looking at some data, and it was published in 2023. And the one study that you refer to, though, um, was looking at a very objective outcome. There was not a lot of subjectivity to it. It was inpatient hospital 30-day mortality, very dichotomous, alive or dead. And then it looked at um, some other uh, outcomes uh, and it was using this step wedge configuration. But that main outcome was an adjusted odds ratio for in-hospital mortality with a hazard ratio for 30-day mortality with some pre-specified subgroups. Now, they did find some some decreases in in-hospital mortality for some subgroups, didn't they? So when you're looking at a question like this, it's not the traditional before, after, pre-post, you know, is A better than B? What you're looking at is trend changes. Now, across the world, and this is one of the problems when we're engaging with, with these policy discussions, across the world, more, the survival rates are going up and mortality rates are going down for emergency conditions. So regardless of policy, things are getting better. A lot of that is attributable to um, improvements in technology and training and so on. And this is happening in all contexts, happening in smaller hospitals, larger hospitals. We're just getting better wherever we are at managing these conditions. So if you think about the general trend as being down, then the question is, well, what happens after reconfiguration? Does it even out? Does it, this would be the ideal. It goes down faster, you know, down even faster, you know, uh, mortality rates. Or does it make no difference? We've just got exactly the same trend. Now, what you're seeing is for some conditions, we're seeing this kind of pattern where what was previously quite a steep downward trend is leveling off a little bit. That's bad news. We don't want to see that. A couple of other conditions seems to have gone tilted a little bit more in this direction. But all of these changes are very, very small, not huge. And it, there's no way you could look at this data and say, well, wow, after that, it was like comparing night versus day. Yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't causality because it's an observational study, but the 30-day mortality did decrease further for things like myocardial infarction, stroke, aortic aneurysms, yep. major trauma, but they didn't for other pre-specified subgroups like pneumonia, bowel perforations or hip fractures. 
But the overall trend, what was the overall trend for that mortality rate? Did it, inc- did it continue down that slope that you wanted it to decrease, that 30-day mortality inpatient? Did it decrease continuously down the same slope? It continued to decrease, but at a slower rate. So when you're when you're trying to analyze this kind of stuff, you're talking about the rate of change. So you're kind of getting into a more complicated statistic rather than than we're used to, which is, you know, is, is a bigger than b or is a smaller than b. But but just to come back to this problem of subgroups and so on, a lot of the the, the framing around this question of centralization ends up, and this is the point we make in the editorial, so I'll give over to Luella in a second, is focused always on this tiny group of patients. Now, admittedly, patients with much more severe conditions in terms of, you know, AMI and stroke and major trauma, rather than the bulk of people who attend emergency departments. And when you do studies like the Danish study or a study I conducted in Ireland, which looks at the bulk of people you end up finding these kind of things, which is, it's a lot more messy than just focusing in on the on the heart attacks and strokes and major trauma. And this is a real problem with how this whole debate is framed. Who are we talking about? Which patients are supposed to benefit from centralization? And if it's only 1%, what happens to the other 99%? So my mum, who lives in Kerry, 13 miles away from our local hospital, and 100 miles away, 120 miles away from the, the tertiary hospital, you know, if she falls, which she has done in the past, and, you know, they're trying to do some diagnostic work to try and figure out why did she fall? What are the consequences of the fall? A lot of that, should it be managed in Cork, 120 miles away, or can it be managed in Tralee? But that isn't the kind of, that isn't where the the the, the impetus for all of this is coming from. It's not patients like my mum aren't the people that we talk about when we talk about why we need to centralize you know we're not talking about frail older people with these kind of in out difficult to manage conditions as people move into their 80s we end up focusing all the time on this very select group of patients who by and large can bypass the smaller hospitals and so that means there are alternatives to shutting down smaller emergency departments so it sounds like there could be a bit of denominator neglect or system thinking, not just about the one individual, because there are specific individuals that if we put all of our resources towards that one narrow medical condition, obviously we can probably make improvements, but what impact does that have to the rest of the system? And we see this in emergency medicine all the time when we have these codes called all resources descend on that one person, but there's many other people in the emergency department, many other people. And what does the impact have on those people? Because you're not paying attention to those people while you're paying all of your attention and all your resources on that one individual with that one problem. A lot of this starts with, you know, you've got your academic working in his lovely office in a big city, in an academic medical center, gets access to some data, crunches it and shows you know, at some meeting, a volume outcome relationship where, you know, the higher the volume of patients coming through a center, a stroke center, the better the outcomes for patient having stroke. And and if I see that, I say, great. So what? What do we do next? And the problem is so many people are making this leap to, 
well, we, we well we should be shutting this emergency department. We should be repurposing acute active. And then I want to say, how did you get there? You're just talking about stroke patients. How did we end up talking about every patient who goes to this smaller acute hospital is now affected because you did an analysis on one group of patients? And we don't do this for any other area of medicine. We don't make those leaps. And I think this is the problem. I think I better point out that you're the one that brought up strokes and uh, centralization of stroke care, not me. Um, All right, Luella, I've got a few questions for you because I'm wondering, is there any reason to think, because this study was a Danish study, is there any reason to think that this is unique and it lacks external validity to other healthcare systems? You're in the UK, I'm in Canada. Actually, John currently is recording this in the U.S. You know, there's Australia, there's all these other countries. Do you think that this is a unique situation of the centralization or can it be extrapolated to other healthcare centers? Well, so the first thing to say is that there's a reasonable amount of research out there which has been completely ignored um, or at least misconstrued, which is, I think, one of the main points that we make in the uh, in the editorial. So John specifically studied um, a similar program uh, that happened in Ireland where a number of departments were closed and there was major reconfiguration of EDs. And John can certainly talk a lot more about the outcomes of that. But again, one could not say that that was an outrageous success for the amount of money that was spent. Um, the Hasea group in, in the USA have been studying consecutive rounds of reconfiguration in, um, in California, and the outcomes there have shown that, that closing, if you, if you close an urban hospital that is close to its nearest neighbour, that's probably okay. But there is a relationship between the distance between the ED closed and its next neighbour and the outcomes to the patients. And the Hasea group has found that for acute medical, for patients with acute medical conditions, that for every extra 10 minutes you have to travel, your mortality goes up by about 1%. The same finding was found with reconfiguration of of, um, emergency departments in Sweden. So they looked only at myocardial infarction. But again, for every 10K, you have extra 10K, you have to travel, your mortality from your MI goes up by 1%. Um, And there have been national studies of reconfiguration in the US done by Harvard, which have again shown that it's not uniform, but if the hospital that that is closed then become, if its neighbours become overcrowded, then again, the mortality goes up in in those hospitals. And it doesn't just affect the people who have to travel longer distances. It's everybody else in that hospital then becomes affected by the problems which are produced by the closure of the of the neighbouring organisation. So there's quite a lot of evidence from um, North America um, and Europe which shows that this is a problem. There's also been extensive research on closure of obstetric services in Australia um, which shows that it worsens, it worsens outcomes. So there is... It's not like the research in this field is lacking. It's just that it's ignored. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes to that Danish study, but I'd like to get to your editorial because in that editorial, you mentioned five assumptions that are made by those advocating for emergency healthcare centralization. And so I want to go through each of those uh, points with you and hear your responses. So the first assumption that you talk about is there's an assumption that there is a problem with the quality of emergency medicine care, and that quality needs to be addressed. It needs to be fixed. This comes back to the point I made earlier, that there is a, a downward trend in death rates 
which is good. And, and that begs the question, and this is happening across contexts, this begs the question, where does the impetus for reconfiguration come from? Where is the crisis and what's causing the crisis? And initially, a lot of this stuff is framed as being about some sort of quality of care crisis, as though there was some sort of amino, some sort of whole area of deaths or you know mortality which is amenable to some kind of quality improvement. And that is rarely pointed to or rarely demonstrated consistently for the, for the specific geographies which are in question. Now, what you might get occasionally is safety incidents at smaller hospitals. You get safety incidents at larger hospitals as well. But just taking those units, those big, you know, whole populations who are going through emergency departments in smaller hospitals, there's no evidence that things are getting worse or that there's a whole chunk of lives that could be saved by implementing this policy of cutting down the um, of closing acute um, emergency departments. There are instances, obviously, of where subgroups like patients with AMI and so on could benefit from bypassing those hospitals. And by and large, many countries are implementing that kind of policy. But it's a massive step to then say, and therefore... Close the entire department, close the entire hospital, yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of the times this this boils down to questions around acute surgery, because, you know, we, we've by and large come to a kind of consensus about stroke and major trauma and AMI. And then you're left with the, you know, let's say acute um, abdominal surgery, abdominal emergency surgery. And, and the, the evidence there is very, very um, disputable. And for example, in Ireland, we, we uh, conducted a study, found no evidence of, of a volume outcome relationship. But of course, that's the big Jenga piece. If you take that away, if, that, if the hospital is no longer able to perform that kind of care, or provide um, intensive care, then you can't run an emergency department. So that's really where the rubber hits the road in the debate. Just going to point out that, that the um, that the evidence for stroke uh, and for trauma is imperfect also. So in the UK, they reconfigured stroke services in London and did get quite significant benefits out of it. But when they try have tried to do the same thing elsewhere, they have not found the same benefits. The trauma services across the whole of the UK, UK have been reconfigured with no evidence in improvements in mortality and some evidence that the trauma that those organizations which have trauma services suffer from problems with overcrowding because as you said if you have a if you have an, an emergency all of the resource gets diverted to that instead of dealing with all of the other patients um, in the department and it also leads to stripping of skill from those places which used to deal with trauma patients and now they don't so so the evidence for these things so the evidence for AMI is excellent the evidence for other things is actually less good than everybody I think believes that it is so a bit of overinterpretation going on well the other thing is like I think people just need to sit down dispassionately at the beginning of these debates and say to themselves what do I want to be true and of course it you know, in many areas, um, if you work in a large academic medical center, if you are a subspecialist, subspecialist, you want it to be true that larger centers have superior care. You work in those um, centers. And I just think that there is also a, a, a problem of having a, 
people having a very strong affinity to this idea of standardization and the idea that bigger is always better. And it's very hard once you've been socialized into those types of beliefs and a lot of that socialization happens as people go through professional training. It's very hard to shake that off. And I think that is having a big influence on how these debates are framed. The second assumption you point out in your editorial is that smaller hospitals provide worse care than in their larger counterparts. And this is an assumption. And yet there is data out there because I've published it. I've published data showing that in rural small hospitals, the CTAS standards, which is the Canadian Triage and Acuity Scale score, these time metrics that we're trying to achieve, do better in rural centers than in urban centers. Time to addressing pain or uh, whether or not you're addressing pain. So oligoanalgesia, um, addressing that was better in a rural area. Time to antibiotics for things like pneumonia, better in rural areas. And then the one big paper I had was on, it was a door-to-needle time when we were treating acute myocardial infarctions. And there's this benchmark, this quality metric of hitting 30 minutes to door to needle. We called it the barn door to needle time. And again, we we showed that in a, in a rural communities, uh, this was happening faster, faster and, and achieving all those benchmarks. So there is this assumption that smaller hospitals provide worse care, and yet the data does not necessarily bear that out. Any comments? Yeah, so I was just going to say, so so that's completely true. So the, the UK uh, runs uh, quite a lot of high quality national audit data. And if you look across the national audit data for things like uh, intensive care, uh, abdominal surgery, other types of care, there is no evidence that the care in smaller hospitals is in fact actually worse. There was also a national study done several years ago of smaller versus larger hospital. No evidence that, that smaller hospitals provide worse care across a a whole series of of indicators. It's not true. And again, the same thing if you if you look at other countries, again for the for the US, you know, a critical access hospital in the US, it's tiny. It's only twenty five it's only twenty five beds. But there's no evidence that the very low volume surgery, you know, you don't want you, you know, you don't want your aorta fiddle with in a in a in a critical access hospital. But for kind of standard sorts of operations, there's no evidence that the outcomes in these sorts of organizations is worse. So, so there, there is this this kind of myth that care in smaller hospitals must be worth it. There's, there's no hard evidence for this. And you're talking about a very small minority that are what would be considered maybe truly emergency time-dependent things. Something about 1% of ED attendants are for things that account for major trauma, stroke, MI. And then if you bundle in things like abdominal, vascular surgery, and obstetrical care, you still only get up to about 5%. That means 95% has, you know, is what we're, 95% of emergency visits don't encompass those things. Yes, exactly. And I think anyone who works in an emergency department recognizes that immediately. And there's a massive disconnect between how how the research is framed and the reality of what care looks like in an emergency department. The other problem is, see, I think one of the the biggest problem here is that smaller hospitals are, are vulnerable to this kind of debate. They're not at the table when these decisions are being made, whereas the larger academic medical centers are at the table. And I think if you're not able to frame 
the um, the way this debate is goes and and point out the things that me and Luella point out in the editorial, then they'll get ignored and you get these decisions happening. Is it possible to have poor care in a smaller hospital? Of course it is possible to have poor care in a smaller hospital, but it's also possible to have excellent care in a smaller hospital. And not enough of the debate is about how is that done? How do we, how do we get to excellent care in smaller hospitals? What we end up with is a one-size-fits-all kind of uh, approach to the problem. Uh, and it's almost as though the, the, the excellent smaller hospitals are an irritation and something to be ignored because they are getting in the way of this larger policy agenda, which we would like to see implemented. Yeah, and I and I would agree with that. So, so a, a good example of this is um, is never incidents. So, so these are incidents that which are called, which according to NHS England should never ever happen in any context in England. Uh, and actually, the hospitals which have the most never incidents uh, include mine, which is one of the largest hospitals in the UK. But no one ever talks about closing large centres of excellence. That's never discussed. At the moment, there's a very large debate about the terrible culture in one of the larger hospitals in England. Um, And if this was a smaller hospital, there would be a discussion about closing it or merging it so that someone else could take it over and fix the problems of the smaller hospital. That's not discussed in, in regard to a very large teaching hospital. That, that's that's never contemplated. So the solutions, as John said, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the solutions which are reached for for perceived problems with smaller hospitals are, are not even discussed with regards to, to bigger ones. And what we talk about in the in the editorial is, well, why is this happening? And we don't think this is for nefarious reasons. We think it's because there are other pressures on the system around things like workforce, staffing, financing. And when all of those pressures bubble to the surface, what do you do? You look for the for the low hanging fruit, and you look for the most vulnerable. I think organisations; those are the ones where you can make a change. You're not going to ch- close down um, a hospital like Guy's or, or one of the very large hospitals in London or in Dublin, in the country where I live. So then you look for what what can we do to cut costs, reduce demand, and um, solve the workforce problems that we're experiencing. And then you know this is this is the policy option that's left on the table. I suspect there's some cognitive biases involved as well, because when you work in a small center like I do, if you do have a bad outcome or there's an adverse event or something takes place, where do we send those people when that happens? We send them to the larger institutions. So they, they have this selection bias of seeing that. And when they have a bad outcome at a large institution, they don't send them to me in a small institution for me to go, oh, look, at they, they can't take care of anything. Right. So I think there's some cognitive biases probably taking place. Exactly. It's it's the way the problem is framed from the beginning. Let's say, you know, it's analogous, I think, to home births. If there's a if there's a tragic incident with a home birth, we think we immediately think, well, that, that must be something to do with the home birth. If it happens in an obstetric unit, we think, well, we did everything we could. You know, it probably was avoidable or 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 the care itself, you know, you know, we we'll we'll do an investigation. But there's nothing wrong with the general standard of care or the, or the general model of care. Yeah, so they rationalize it. Yeah, you rationalize it as well. What do you expect when you, know, you, you, you go for this supposedly more risky option? So the third assumption that you have in your paper is that reconfiguration is assumed to produce better outcomes. 
And of course, in science, those making the claim have the burden of proof. So is there really high quality evidence uh, around the world that reconfiguration produces better outcomes? No. No. I... No, moving along. <laughs> well, what, I'll tell you what is the real problem. Why isn't anyone investigating this properly? You know, so why, why are we stuck with these condition-specific analyses? And that reconfiguration has been going on for a long time now, but it's, it's remarkably understudied. So you applaud the Danish people for doing this. They have high-quality data. It's happening in the UK for a long time. We've had limited success investigating it in Ireland. It should be investigated everywhere. We shouldn't just be implementing these policies and saying, well, that's done. You know, let, let's move on. There's no point in worrying about it. We should be investigating it. Well, I think it's also important to say that although this, the, there, um, there have been some studies which have come out assessing this from Denmark, there wasn't a program commissioned properly to look at this running alongside. So all they can look at is what sits in the National Registry, which has been done by people who are, who are I'm not sure whether they're funded to do it or not. But they're, you know, the proper way to have done this would have been to have commissioned a long-running investigative program, mixed methods, qual quant, to look at how they did it, why they did it, what were the outcomes that were attached to it. And this wasn't done. The government weren't interested in actually knowing whether the program was really genuinely successful or not. And what we've what we've ended up with is a bunch of retrospective studies where even the most basic questions like why are we doing this have to be unearthed almost like archaeologists from the archives and through qualitative methods rather than having you know the the the, the rationale the goals the measurables so this is how we'll know what successful looks like this is how we'll know what failure looks like and then a plan b so if things are going wrong, this is what will happen next. None of that is set up in advance. It's almost as though, you, you know, you have this in, poli in health policy, we have this notion of path dependency. So the, the idea is, well, you always start from where you are. And if you have closed a smaller hospital, it's never going to be reopened. So it's almost like, well, why would you bother wondering about it? We already, got, we already implemented the policy. There's no going back. And of course, that's not how good, um, good science should be done. Well, a reflection of us as a society, I think, is how we how we care for our most vulnerable. And there are studies that actually demonstrate that hospital closures affect those in uh, socioeconomic, geographic, and ethnic groups differently with the burden of these closures falling most heavily on the most vulnerable. And I don't think that anybody sitting around the table is, hey, I think we should harm the most vulnerable um, in our decisions. And I usually come to the table and say, Let's use the veil of ignorance. You don't know if you live in that small village with that small uh, hospital that's taking care of 95% of what you need, or you don't know if you're living in that big urban tertiary quaternary care center. You don't have that. You have a veil of ignorance. So now decide, what are you going to do? What implementation and policies are you going to implement? Because you don't know where you live. I totally agree. So the fourth assumption that you guys have in your um, editorial is that the remaining organizations, so some are going to be closed down and centralized, but the remaining organizations are minimally affected by reconfiguration. Now, I've, I've worked in multiple rural sites and there were multiple closures this last summer. So this is an N of one personal experience. It does affect the centers that are still open, but we're never 
up-resourced. We don't get more nursing staff. We don't get more rooms to see these patients. We don't get more ambulances put on to address these needs as this additional volume comes to the centers that remain open. But there's the assumption that, yeah, it'll be no big deal. And we're already on the edge working in these centers, you know, uh, on skeleton staff or short-staffed. And now we're going to close the, 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 the hospital down the road just because you close the hospital down the road, their emergency department doesn't make the number of people with diabetes or high blood pressure or lacerations or broken bones go away. Yep. I mean, I think Luella knows a little bit about this problem of um, yep. of um, the, the balance between efficiency and fragility. And I think we're starting to just sense because of the pandemic that this obsessive focus on efficiency is not necessarily it, it shouldn't be the deal breaker it currently is, and that that that, that the more if the more you try and, and, and achieve efficiencies, the more fragile you make systems. And of course, the pressures on health systems are getting worse and worse. And at the same time, we're making the systems more fragile by centralizing care. So if one center falls over because it's overcrowded, then what do you do? You don't have all of that little spare capacity you used to have. I think that people are starting to realize that. Another important criteria now is resilience and and um, and uh, and you know working against the, fr the fragility of systems. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting. So I was actually in Denmark last week uh, at a conference that was particularly looking at the the built environment. That so so part of the reconfiguration um, in Denmark was a major building program. So they built six new hospitals. And they've been um, reconfiguring and, and improving um, another another ten. So a really massive building program. And there's no doubt that some of the new hospitals and the extensions are extraordinary. They are absolutely and utterly extraordinarily beautiful. But the building sites have been plagued. There have been major problems with the with the reconfiguration. So due to cost pressures, wards have been closed, capacity has been taken out, um, some of the services have been truncated, and the the new hospitals um, where they where they have been open, they are overcrowded, uh, and the staff find it stressful working in these. And this was also um, put in a published study that was published just before the um, the Brabren study was, that actually this in itself is a problem. And they haven't even yet finished the program of hospital closures. So, you know, the, the closure of hospitals creates major problems in adjoining ones. And as I said, there is a major, you know, one of my working theories is that some of the problems in the UK landscape are created by successive rounds of hospital closures. We have closed half of all beds and closed half of all hospitals or closed or merged all of half of all hospitals in the UK um, over the last 30 years. And what do we have? We have a system that lacks capacity and is severely overcrowded. And now we're starting to see the fruits of that, which is increased mortality for patients who have um, long lengths of stay in the ED. Uh, and the same was shown uh, in an excellent study done by the Harvard group and the same with HASEA, which is that, that if your hospital closes and that makes your next one over overcrowded or they change the way that they deliver services in response to that, your mortality goes up. And it goes up not just for those patients who have come longer distances, but for every single patient in the hospital. And that's really a big problem. And, and we have this problem of goalpost shifting all the time. This stuff is always sold as being a magic bullet that's going to save lives. Then you then you get pu studies published afterwards 
where the, the the conclusion is something like, well, it didn't make things any worse. I mean, it, it was supposed to make things better. Like you induced all this fragility. You spent 5 billion euros. Yeah, you induced all this fragility, <laughs> created all this stress for patients, extra travel times, the damage to the environment, all the extra costs to patients of traveling, usually older and poorer patients, uh, the, the impact on the on their carers, the disruption of local relationships, the harm to local economies. You did all of this and you achieved nothing. And then people just uh, people are happy to publish papers saying, well, it didn't get any worse, so stop moaning. I mean, I think the, the indifference is staggering sometimes. Well, the fifth and final assumption that you have in your editorial is that reconfiguration has other benefits and no unintended consequences. So this is the part of where you know, there is this bias to power studies and have primary outcome studies looking at um, benefit. How effective is something? What is the efficacy? And the flip side of that coin is um, what is the potential harm? So any intervention that we uh, have in medicine, there's a potential benefit and there are also potential harm. So unintended consequences. Oh, well, you know, we're just looking at the benefit side of things and not looking at the unintended consequences. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I can go. Well, there's a lot to unpack with all of this. So, so there's multiple levels around this. So the first, the first concerning thing is, is the notion, and this again has happened in Denmark, which is that they couldn't actually, they tried to shut the whole hospitals, but they couldn't. So they reconfigured some of the services as kind of, you know, healthcare centres, which interestingly still have some beds. Uh, and that's great. But in the US, what they found is that where they've tried to do this over time, they can't get people to stay in the services because they become less and less attractive to work there. The people who live there kind of die or retire or eventually move away. And so the services become harder and harder to sustain until they collapse entirely. And then there's no one who provides any healthcare in those areas. You know, this has been seen in in um, in East Kent in the UK, which is a, a really deprived coastal area. Um, and the problems, even they've suggested closing one of the hospitals there. And the response to that is that half the GPs in the local area have left. Uh, and so there is no, you know, the, the, the quality of care to the whole entire community has declined simply through the suggestion of removing the hospital from a community of 80,000 incredibly poor people. Uh, and, and so that in itself, the, f the fact that, that you create these, these areas of deprivation um, is truly astonishing to me. They found it even in Detroit, so which is, you know, quite densely urban, when they've closed hospitals in Detroit, the rest of the services leave because the hospital is a safe space. It supports outreach programs and other kinds of things. The hospital closes and the, and the mortality of the whole entire, that whole entire urban area goes up. So th these are, are not helpful things to 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 do. It, it the the quality of that you know the intention again is go well we'll leave some services there and that will be sufficient. Well, they're usually not sufficient. No, uh, and that in itself is an enormous problem. I think. Yeah, that's not even getting to some of the other things. Yeah, I think they refer to those as uh, deserts of care. Right, you have these large areas where there there's nothing. I think I've heard of that referred to in food deserts, where there's no ability mm -hmm. to a grocery store and find you know um, good healthy food. Now you have deserts of care. We're talking about some of the basic stuff, like you know access to food and clean drinking water. Now you're going to have access to primary care, like you know deserts of care out there. 
yeah. You know, and they, as I said, they start off with good intentions, but over the long term, they're just unable to, they're just unable to, to sustain it. Uh, and again, the studies that, that look at what happens to healthcare workers, initially it looks quite good because if you, if you look at registrations and registrations by postcode, it doesn't really tend to change. Because, you know, if you, you know, if I stop working as a doctor tomorrow, for whatever reason, I'm not going to get my registration up immediately, I'm probably going to keep it running for a couple of years. So that doesn't change. But actually, when they look at sociological studies around choices, even if people can go to work, so they looked at hospital closures in New York, um, even when people had ready access to choosing another hospital to work at, they didn't go and work at another hospital, they frequently left hospital medicine and went and did something else. And that applied to both doctors and nursing staff. So you don't, it's not like that people go and work at these new bigger centres, flasher, more exciting centres further away. They just leave over time. Uh, and, and you get attrition of workforce and, and retention of the international workforce at the moment is a, a major problem. I think it's one of the biggest problems confronting healthcare at the moment. One thing I'll add, I mean, you know, whenever I say this, people think, oh, my God, he's gone crazy because he's, uh, you know, he's really extending the argument now into areas he shouldn't. But I mean, I do think we need to look at these areas, you know, and when people think of rural, they're probably thinking of interior, you know, green rolling fields. We're not just talking about rural here. We're also talking about, I think peripheral is often a better word and peripheral meaning, uh, you know, not near centers of power. So in the UK, a lot of the worst instances of are, um, are actually on the coast, coastal communities, which are quite deprived. Yes. Um, and long distances from the larger academic medical centres. Now, you look at those communities and what have they suffered over decades between deindustrialization and the loss of all of these vital public services? It's, I'm always staggered by elites who look at these communities and wonder why they're disaffected. They're disaffected because decision after decision after decision has come from the centre, which is supposedly, you know, in their best interests and done with benevolent reasons, but which have led to the, you know, destruction of infrastructure in these communities. And then elites are amazed to see them voting for, you know, what they consider to be not in their best interests or populists, as though, you know, the people who live in these communities are just happy to end up on the wrong side of some sort of algorithm that was done in the large academic medical centre. And when they hear the news say, oh, well, those are the breaks. That's science, I guess. <laughs> we'll just have to lose our hospital or we'll just have to lose our factory. Of course not. So, you know, for, for these marginal to zero benefits, what do you end up with? A divided society, environmental damage, a lot of harm to older and poorer patients, and all of and a whole range of other damages to workforce and and fragility within the health system and for what what did we achieve uh, and and many of the tiny achievements we've we see in small in in these you know small baskets of conditions can be achieved without inflicting that damage on these communities to say i'd just like to back up what john says there you know the the hospital is an incredibly important symbol of how much a community matters and you can see that the vociferousness with which locals, you know, fight for their local hospitals, but not just because they're important to their health, but they're a psychological symbol that the government cares about them too. They are a source of, not only are they, are they economic, you know, generators, they are a source of civic pride. Um, and, and the removal of this 
states publicly that the government doesn't care about you as a citizen. Uh, and, and the refusal to see that or to think that these people are, you know, I come from a, a small rural community that, that, you know, votes the wrong way. Uh, you know, the, the, the notion that these people are somehow ignorant or evil or wrong thinkers, deserving of, of their loss, the wrong thinkers, it makes me furiously angry. Oh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. I like like John. I, I get quite exercised about all of this. You know, these these people pay their taxes and they and they and they matter too. Yeah. And they deserve um, equitable access to healthcare. I have a whole talk on that. Your access to appropriate and timely healthcare should not be postal code dependent. It doesn't matter your postal code. You're valued everywhere, and you should have you know basic care to primary care and to emergency care, irregardless of your postal code. And we should set up the system to make sure that happens. Not well, you chose to live there, so those are the risks. Exactly, and that's often the mindset. Yeah, so, so I'm a pragmatic girl. I come from very, you know, I come from quite rural Australia. Lots of people I know came from very rural Australia. And, and you know, if you're, if you're you know, there, there are some points at which that some risk has to be accepted, but it has to be reasonable and steps have to be taken to mitigate it. But as John said, you know, once you're in, in a, a, you know, a provincial area, which still has a sizable population, the notion that your hospital can be removed from you and it's not going to have any impact on your, on your local community despite the evidence is just it's bonkers well it's it's trying to find the it's trying to find that that goldilocks zone because i mean canada's a huge country should we just build some massive healthcare infrastructure right right in the middle of the country winnipeg and have this huge huge mm. health infrastructure and just create the system to ship everybody there or should we have a, you know we obviously can't have a tertiary care center every 10 or 15 kilometers so what is that goldilocks zone what's the right amount yeah and i think and what's the right balance um, for the settlement patterns that you see in a particular geography. And of course, in order to working that kind of stuff out requires a set of skills around, you know, geography, economics, planning, epidemiology, which are not concentrated in, for example, intensive care specialisms or emergency department specialisms. So allowing one specialist uh, specialism to kind of veto everything else or to have all the power of decision-making in an area, I think is incredibly dangerous. And I think one of the problems we have is that who's at the table when these decisions are being made? And often what you won't have are people who, who either work or live in these communities able to, to speak to these points. And, you know, I, I'm proud of the work that I do with Luella because I feel we come from uh, those kind of backgrounds. We're, we're card-carrying members of the elite <laughs> these days, but we're still able to work from the inside out, bringing that kind of case to the table. Well, thanks for going through those five assumptions. I'm going to give you both the opportunity. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? What what the conclusions of your editorial or the overall message or the take-home message? Anything else you want to say about this topic before we finish up? Well, I just want to say one thing, which is that people in rural areas or peripheral areas are entitled to high quality care. Nobody's arguing for poor quality care. They're entitled to high quality care. And to the extent that that's achievable, I think we should be we should be focusing on that in as close as close as possible to the places where people uh, live. 
living in a rural life is inherently inefficient. The schools are less efficient. The police services are less efficient. Transport services are less efficient. We just have to accept that. Now, if someone, if we're going to, as a society, decide that nobody should live in these areas, let's have that discussion. You know, and I think sometimes behind the veil, there is this um, this larger impetus to um, move towards um, urban visions of, of of what the good life looks like. But that isn't, you know, that the, the, the people who are in medical specialisms or epidemiology or working in large academic or medi- academic medical centers, they do not have the authority to unilaterally make those kinds of decisions. Yeah, so I'd just like to say that, that at the moment, the Danish uh, model of care is being held up as an exemplar across Europe. So there are plans to close hospitals across the Netherlands, Germany, Norway, with following the, the, the success, in inverted commas, of, of the Danish model. Attention, close attention needs to be paid to what the evidence is. There may be some efficiencies which can be gained, for example, in Germany, which has large numbers of, you know, which has more hospitals and more hospital beds than any other country in the world. But it's not the it's not going to be the improvement of care that they think it is. And, and I worry very much that we are storing up massive problems for the future. There is not enough capacity in the system as it is, and this will only take more capacity out. And despite all of the good intentions, there has never, ever, ever been any program which has actually reduced the need for medical care. Uh, So I think that this is all just wishful. I think it's all wishful thinking. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was Dave Michelson. He is a PA He knew the longest time a human has remained awake is 264 hours. This is not a challenge, and we do not want anyone to try to break that record. Uh, There's no keener contest connected with this show. However, the SGM will be back next week doing a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication with a keener contest question. We're going to continue to try to cut that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year with the power of social media. So patients get the best care based upon the best evidence. Well, thank you very much, John and Luella, for joining me on this special SGEM Extra. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm going to ask both of you to do a tag team presentation to read the tagline with the same amount of enthusiasm and passion that you have for the evidence and for rural health. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn. Even if you heard it on the skeptic side to emergency medicine. Talk to everyone next week. This is my life and I don't